Please turn also to the New Testament, to the book of Ephesians. The text for this morning is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. We'll begin reading from verse 15 through verse 23. This also is God's word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our loving God, we thank you, Father. For you are the one who gives us your word. We pray, Father, that we would hope in your word, that we would hope in you, because with you there is abundant redemption, that with you there is steadfast love. Father, we pray that we would delight in Jesus Christ, that we would trust in your power that has redeemed us by the blood of your Son. Father, we thank you that you are far greater than the powers of sin, the powers of darkness. Father, you are one who has called us to a new and a living hope, a hope we did not have, a hope in Jesus Christ, which is true hope. Father, we pray that you would sustain us in this life, that you would sustain our faith, that we would be those who trust in your generous provision, that your ways are perfect, that your provision of a Savior in Jesus Christ is perfect. And Father, we pray that we would trust that you have prepared a place for us, that our Lord Jesus had said so. We pray that we would believe him at his word. Father, we ask that you would guide us in the manner of living, that we would live victoriously in Jesus Christ, for he reigns supreme. He reigns supreme in this world and in our hearts also. We pray, Father, that if any are here who do not know you, we pray, Father, for a true humility to embrace the promises of the gospel. We pray, Father, that we would trust that in you we have the forgiveness of sins. We thank you, Father. We pray that your son would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. The world has a lust for power. The world has a lust for power. 
The world understands coercion. It understands oppression. It understands the harsh requirements of the law. What it doesn't understand is a joyful, willing submission. As things in the world get worse, as the powers that be take and obtain greater and greater power, what you'll see is that they're set apart from that the power of God. So you have the power of man, you have the power of God. The power of man can only, convor- uh, can only coerce. It can only threaten with the sword, with punishment, with fines. And man, who is natural, understands that type of power. They actually have a lust for that power. And in contrast to that, you have the power of God. It was such a big deal for people raised in in these powerful regimes that they would hear the word, I believe. Beginning of the, the Apostles' Creed or whatever confession that we have, that man would actually believe the things in which they submit. Because other places they understand, no, this is the public face. And that when totalitarianism takes over public and private life, there's no separation. And there is only the submission to the government. But what we have here is true power in Jesus Christ, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. This is a power that says, I submit to a greater master, and I have a greater fear. The fear of man is driven out by having a greater fear of God, and that God is powerful to transform. He transforms our loves. He transforms our desires. What a powerful thing it is when when someone says to you, I would require you to do this. Walk with me one mile. The power is, no, I will gladly walk with you two miles in joy. Here, when we see this passage, it fits into this book of Ephesians, presenting the glorious Savior in Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. Earlier we read in verse 17 that the Apostle Paul was asking, That God's people would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And here in verses 18 and 19, he explains what it is that he he wants us to know, what, what, what it is he wants us to understand. There are three things that are mentioned, the three, what we call the three what's. So you have the, what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? So here we have hope, we have uh, riches of inheritance, and we have the, uh, the, hope, the, the power, the power in us who believe. So the truth that we see in this passage here, by the Holy Spirit's illuminating work, sever your old ways and embrace your blessed hope in Jesus Christ. By the Holy Spirit's illuminating work, sever your old ways and embrace your blessed hope in Jesus Christ. We'll see this in three points. The first is the Holy Spirit illumines the hope of your calling. Second, the Holy Spirit illumines your eternal wealth by inheritance. And third, the Holy Spirit illumines God's power at work in you. So we have here the first point, Holy Spirit illumines the hope of your calling. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Here, we think about the, the work of the Holy Spirit 
Here we have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. This is not a small S spirit. It is a large S, meaning the Holy Spirit grants uh, wisdom and revelation that we might know God better. But some of you ask, well, wait a minute. Didn't the Holy Spirit do this mighty work of regeneration? Well, yes, he did. But didn't God, uh, we're told in earlier in this chapter, that he, he gives uh, the deposit of the Holy Spirit? It's a pledge or an earnest that guarantees our inheritance. Yes, he did also. But he's also giving the Holy Spirit that we might have wisdom and revelation. That wisdom and understanding for a Christian don't suddenly uh, come, come to its maximum state. You know, the Apostle Paul describes this, was it in 1 Corinthians 13, when he says, uh, Now we see dimly, and then we will have eyes to see fully, right? That will be fully known. We think about the Holy Spirit's work of illumination. The simple principle there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is that God is helping us to esteem and embrace and delight in that which belongs to God. When before the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. But instead, with the work of the Holy Spirit, we start to treasure the things that come from God. That the Holy Spirit is one who brings us out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. That he is the one who is shedding light on the things that are his. And that as we come out of darkness, that we start to see that which is beautiful and good. We think about this hope. This hope is contrasted with what you had before Christ. And though I don't know everything about your life, at least I can say anyone before Christ... There wasn't hope. There was only despair. There was hopelessness. There was a life of darkness and not light. There was a life of hate. Titus chapter 3 talks about how uh, we were hated and hating one another. That lives were not filled of joy and filled with purpose and filled with uh, all the things that were good. The contrast is that when, when God calls you into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, the hope of your calling is he's calling you out of something bad and into something good. You realize that the world uses hope, the word hope, and talks about hope all the time. You think about the various things. Hey, I, I hope that the Vikings will do better next season. I, I hope that your, your grandmother will recover soon. I, I hope that I'll go to heaven someday. Right? Here, we talk about these petty hopes. Right? People use this term all the time. But you realize that true hope is only found in Jesus Christ. It's only in Jesus that we have true hope. Here, there must be an admission that you are not the source or the object of your hope. That God is both the source and the object of your hope. That he provides, he supplies that hope. And that he is also the person in which we hope. What he does throughout our lives is 
He dries up, he dries up those other objects of hope so that he helps us to see, hey, uh, that, that thing, that person, that job, that whatever, the hope that you had in it starts to come to an end. The worldly options become dead ends and that you begin to realize, I have no hope but in Jesus Christ and Him alone. God has called you in Christ to a life of hope. And this is completely different than what the world has to offer you. We have hope in God's promises. We read that in Psalm 130, verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in His word do I hope. In, in God's word, we have his exceedingly great promises. He's promised us great things. And it gives us hope because we believe we will receive it exactly as he's promised it. We also hope, we realize, hoping in his word, hoping in his promises, is nothing other than hoping in God himself. So the psalmist there continues in Psalm 130, verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him there is abundant redemption. This hope of yours is founded upon God's love for you and is secured by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, 5. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This hope is perhaps you could say synonymous with an assurance of salvation, right? It's the hope of your calling that he uh, has not called you to judgment and wrath. He's called you to eternal life. He's called you to a new and a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the one who persuades you, who convinces you of these things. We read earlier in the, catech- uh, in the confession of faith regarding the assurance of uh, salvation, assurance of grace and salvation. Here, what it says was, this infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith. What does that mean? It means that for someone to have saving faith, it doesn't necessarily mean that he or she will also have the assurance of salvation. You understand that? So someone can genuinely be saved. They've crossed from death to life because God has genuinely given the gift of saving faith. But they may not have the assurance of salvation. Those, those don't always go together. Someone may lack assurance but be saved. We think about the various reasons why someone may lack assurance. Perhaps the most obvious one is if they're living in some type of of disobedience or some type of laziness or some type of rebellion, right? That God, one of God's gifts that he gives to his children, he gives them the gift of assurance. And and then he takes that away when we uh, stray far from him. But there are other reasons why someone may lack this hope or lack this assurance of salvation. Have you you ever wondered, ever watched a a team sport, whether football or basketball, whatever, whatever it might be, you notice that 
Nobody trash talks the, the player that's like the bench warmer. Right? Have you ever noticed that? They don't, they don't trash talk the, like the third string person, right? They trash talk the person who's, who's there, uh, who's the starting lineup. You want to see or hear some good trash talking? You want to want to go back and, and watch some of these videos of uh, Cassius Clay, or otherwise known as Muhammad Ali. That when his youth he was he was like he was like the master trash talker, right? And, and you think about Satan. Well, what is Satan other than a master trash? He's even better than Muhammad Ali as a trash talker. But you notice that here, Satan doesn't want to bother the assurance of of the hypocrite, right? Because here, the hypocrite thinks he's saved, right? And what Satan likes to do is he likes to keep people kind of, if they're, if they're not saved, he wants them to think they're saved so they don't, that they don't search and, and question and then find true, a true and living hope. But what he'll do is he'll, he'll keep on attacking the true believer and get him to doubt and question, right? That this is what this is what Satan likes to do. He tries to rob people who have a true relationship with Jesus. He tries to damage that relationship with Jesus. And if you have a true hope in Jesus Christ, he wants to rob you of that hope. These are various ways that hope can be attacked. Here, understand that Christian hope it's a characteristic. It's it's a product of true faith. Having true faith in Jesus Christ, having saving faith in Jesus Christ, comes with it then hope. So it's, it's not typical, it should not be characteristic of a Christian that they would live their lives in despair, in, in utter hopelessness. It ought not to be. And if you are there, we, you ought to be asking, well, why, why am I manifesting uh, that which is not this fruit? We, we ought to be manifesting a, a joy and a peace and a hope in Jesus Christ. Because he's, he called us out of this darkness, out of this hopelessness, out of this despair. And in Jesus, we have true hope. We're trusting in his provision. We're trusting in becoming inheritance. We're trusting in the power that is at work in you and me. So that's the first point. The Holy Spirit illumines the hope of your calling. We have the second point. The Holy Spirit illumines your eternal wealth by inheritance. The second half of verse 18 what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? <clears throat> Here, before, before the Holy Spirit persuades you about this eternal inheritance or this eternal wealth by inheritance, he first persuades you of your poverty outside of Christ. In order to know your riches, we first must know our own poverty. Poverty is described... If you understand poverty, right? Poverty is not a state of your bank account. Poverty is a state of mind, right? That is to say, people who are poor are not poor because of merely the numbers. They're poor, and it's a culture. It's a way of thinking. The Holy Spirit reveals to us our poverty outside of Christ. It reveals to us that... 
Outside of Christ, we can only be slaves to sin. There's only one possibility. A sinner, and a sinner who sins, is one who is a slave to sin. There's a debt-riddenness, and because of it, we are unable to pay off our debt. That you and I have no merits of our own, not even a one. There's no boast. And when you think about this poverty, we come to realize our lack of spiritual merits. We have none of our own. In Revelation chapter 3, we have the message to the church in Laodicea. Verses 17 and 18. Because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Here we have this church, Laodicea. They were known for their wealth. They were known for their banking system. They were known for having, uh, was it some type of uh, native source, some kind of a mineral that was used to make an eye salve. Right? So here, uh, thank you. Uh, who, uh, this becomes very personal that uh, these Laodiceans who were professing Christians, they believed that they were wealthy. They had all these resources. And, you know, Jesus warns about how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He says it's as hard as a, a camel to walk through the eye of a needle. And here, this is a very description of that principle. That uh, they thought they had all that they needed. They became wealthy. Perhaps it was almost like this... Oh, we became Christians and God, you know, please bless us. And, and, you know, God, you've blessed us. We're exceedingly wealthy and we have need of nothing. And God had warned Israel back then, hey, when, when you become full and you have the flocks multiply, your herds multiply, all that you have multiply. He says, then you will wonder, who is the Lord that I should submit to him? Same thing that happens here. This poverty is having the earthly wealth, the temporal wealth, but not having the true riches, not valuing the true riches. Any of you who desire to get rich, be careful. There's a reason why in Proverbs, giving neither poverty nor wealth. There's wisdom in that. We ought to be grateful that God doesn't give us exceedingly great wealth nor exceeding poverty. Most people are somewhere in the middle. And it's God's mercy that he puts us there. It's how quickly we would run away and forget him. Here, we're reminded in this statement. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? We're reminded here about the means by which you acquire this true wealth. It's through your inheritance from Christ. An inheritance means that it's not by works. Because an inheritance is not earned. An inheritance is not by wages. An inheritance is a gift. It's a gift that's given. And it's based upon a relationship. It's based on a relationship with Jesus Christ. That we are heirs of God. We're co-heirs with Christ. Because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. 
that we receive from God what Jesus willingly shares of his eternal riches. The spiritual and heavenly inheritance only comes to you because of Jesus Christ. And it was a costly gift. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. It was because Jesus, that he became poor, so that we in his poverty might become rich. Meaning that he became poor so that we would become rich. He had to become poor for for us to become rich. It was a costly, it was a costly inheritance that he came to die on the cross. He came to die the shameful death on the cross. Are you trusting in this Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in his perfect work? Are you trusting that when he came 2,000 years ago, that he came with a specific purpose to die on the cross for the sins of his people. And that every single one of your sins has been paid for when Jesus died on the cross. They were paid in full. He obtained eternal redemption. And that because of that, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because of Jesus Christ. So you, you ask, well, wait a minute, what about, what about some of these other things that I bring? Hey, can't, can't I add those to, to the list of his merits? The answer is, no, you tarnish them. Christ's merits are perfect. They can't be added to. Trusting in Jesus Christ is what you and I need to do. Trusting that he finished the work, that it's a perfect work. We cannot add to it. His merits are perfect. Ours are flawed. Here, we're reminded regarding our lives. We're called to work diligently. We're called to labor. But at the same time, the Lord Jesus is the one who says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but trust the Son of Man has given you the food which endures to eternal life. It's also a requirement that we believe God at His word. That you have treasure awaiting you in heaven because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. That he has already given it to you. That Jesus said that he has prepared a place for you in heaven. And if it were not so, he would not have told us. He's prepared a place for us. This requires that we consider where we put our hope and where we put our confidence. It cannot be in the things of this world. Perhaps you've realized, even in this past year, whatever you have saved up, though the number may have grown, I think you come to realize its value has dropped. If, if a country just starts to print all kinds of money and give out all kinds of free money, it doesn't take much more than a child to realize that that value goes down. This should be some idea of where our hope should not be. I think back to you know, Europe and, and what happened in Germany and how families before the war had saved up all kinds of stuff and, and uh, they had great wealth and after the war, all that money summed up could only buy like a postage stamp. And you think about that hope. 
The hope can't be. All you can do is send one letter. That's not even airmail. That would be like, uh, you know, the first class mail. Here, think about the things of this world, things of this life. They're all going to be left behind. They're all going to be burned up. Are you trusting in your eternal riches that come to you by the work of Jesus Christ? Think about the things that are lasting. Think about the things that are important to God. That we, all, we should often be thinking about that. So this is the second point. The Holy Spirit illumines your eternal wealth by inheritance. We have also the Holy Spirit illumines God's power at work in you. In verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might. Here. The Holy Spirit shows us the power that is at work in you. And he first shows us the issues that you have with power. He begins by showing the issues that you have with power. The first one is that of spiritual weakness. That we must admit our own spiritual weakness. This is an inability to save ourselves. It's an inability to meet the righteous requirements of God's law. We like to think of God's law as external, as the letter of the law, as the action. But you realize that God's law is far deeper because we're told that it's the spirit of the law that's at, at, at the heart of it. In fact, you look at something, was it uh, Romans chapter 7? The Apostle Paul addresses his matter of coveting. You think the 10th commandment, the 10th commandment by definition is a spiritual law. It's, it's not a physical external law. It must be inside. And that tells you that all of them are internal. So we're unable to meet the righteous requirements of God's law. We're unable to atone for our own sins. That there's no way for us to cover our own demerits. We are completely unable to give ourselves spiritual birth. No man gives birth to himself. No, one, no man conceives himself. No, no woman conceives herself. This is the entire point in, in John chapter 3. Of lacking the understanding, how can a man be born again? We're also unable to give ourselves spiritual growth. We're, we're told to do certain things, Right? We're told to be faithful in prayer and, and diligent in the study and the reading of God's word. We're told that we, we should be diligent in serving others. That we should have a, a love for Christ's church. But you realize that spiritual growth we cannot do. That's, that's the work of God. That, that Apollos uh, water, I planted Apollos water, but it's God that gives the growth. Continuing with these power issues, we think about the sinful uses of power, that of anger and violence and intimidation and abuse and rage and all the like. The world has this lust for power. It has this lust of power. Perhaps you've tasted that lust for power, the power of words. And it works something like this. You had a bad day. You felt powerless. 
You say to someone something that's just plain evil, something that's hurtful. And from that, you see that it's affected someone negatively. They're hurt by it. And then you think, ah, you see, I still have power. And you think here, why did, I, why did I do that? Why did I say such a thing? It's because in each one of us, there's some kind of a lust for power. That, that's an example of it. You realize that this desire for power, this desire for power, I was reading recently about how, uh, especially during this last two years, people being stuck at home, right? There are all of these uh, social media giants, right, who are these fitness and, and health gurus. So they can get hundreds of thousands of followers, right? So, and, and if they're going to be a fitness guru, they, they can't have this giant gut hanging out, right, this pot belly, right? It's not going to work. No one's going to follow them. So they have to have a good physique. And they're trying to sell their workout plan and their, their, uh, their, their food supplements. And we're told that, hey, more than half of them, at least half of them are using some type of performance-enhancing drug, some kind of you know, steroids or something like that. But of course, they never admit that. They never admit that. And then you think about power. Let's look back in First Samuel. Remember Saul, this wicked man, this wicked king Saul, that his anger, his control issues got so bad that to the point he started interacting with this sorceress, this witch of Endor, right? So he, he, he couldn't go to God in prayer. He wasn't getting the answers. He didn't have the control. So he got to the point he had to go contact a witch. And you think about this witch. The witch was concerned that she was going to get executed by the king until she realized, no, 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 he, he's, he's going to pay me. He's going to use me. He's not going to tell anyone about it. And then you look at the Ephesians in Acts chapter 19. The sinful power issues. You want to talk about the cost of losing. The preaching of the gospel. That the people who were there in Ephesus were told that they had magic arts. right? Essentially that there was a connection with the occult. That they had evil practices. And that they had these spell books. They had these spell books, right? And what they did was they gathered all of them and were told they burned them. These spell books, they, they would have had a connection with, uh, these would be demons, right? They're not anything else but demons. And they burned them. You look at various people. I mean, you look at the, the apostles, you know, Peter and, and John, right? They were fishermen. I, imagine when Jesus called them to be fishers of men. And they had their fishing books, so to say. Hey, we had these fishing books, and we're no longer using them because we're fishers of men. You know what? We could, we could sell these books. They're not going to make 50,000 pieces of silver on it. But there's, hey, we can sell these fishing books because there's nothing wrong with being a fisherman. But understandably, for these people who were involved in these wicked spells and sorcery, they came to an understanding, hey, I, I can't go sell this on eBay for 50,000 pieces of silver. I have to burn them. 
because this is a wicked life. These are wicked things. They must be destroyed. And, and here, God's power is manifested. It's a forsaking of power. Hey, that was power. But you know what? I'm forsaking that. I'm leaving those things behind. And there is a willingness to embrace our own weakness and dependence on God. You think about power. Is, is this power enough? The transformed life of a Christian. That something as simple as when you go to a, a group, you go to a situation, you ask yourself the question, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? What do I gain from that? And the power of God gets us to stop asking that question first and last and everywhere in between. Why should I do that? Why should I serve other people? What's in it for me? The power of God gets you and I to stop asking that question constantly. Because it gets us to ask the question, what's in it for Jesus that he would die on the cross for sinners? And it's a transforming thought. That's power. That's power there. It was difficult as a young man to think about the challenges of getting old. What do you mean? I'm 16 years old. What do you mean I'm going to get old? Of course you're going to get old. You look at these people, my, my parents, grandparents, right? people in the church. Why should we be mourning with them? Because you realize you too will get old. Your life will come to an end. The, the independence you have once had, these will start to be stripped away from you. Being able to empathize with people who are very different from us. When you and I begin to do that, that is a description of power. Because that's called transforming power. The power of God getting us to stop thinking about ourselves. Thinking about other people. Thinking about what is good for Christ's church. Thinking about what's good for our Lord Jesus and the glory of His name. Here, the principle that we have regarding power. It's like you go to a business. Maybe you've had a favorite business, favorite restaurant. And they, they had this sign out there that says, Under new management. That is your life in Christ. Under new management. You're no longer under the power of the devil. Lord willing, we'll see another uh, two or three weeks. We're looking, we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 2. Talks about the prince of the power of the air that's at work in the sons of disobedience. That we are by nature children of wrath. Second Timothy chapter 2 describes how we ought to pray for those who are in Satan's snare, held captive by him to do his will. That you and I are under new management in Jesus Christ that have been set free. We have a new master. You have a renewed will. No longer a will in rebellion against God. Even as Jesus said, Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, Not my will, but yours be done. This is what you and I should be praying. Not my will, yours be done. When we pray, we pray that's, we pray that's the... The addendum or the, the added on. Anything we pray for, we ask. And yet, not my will, but your will be done. Meaning, we trust that if not this, you will provide something better. It's not better as defined by me. It's better as defined by God. We have 
regarding this power, a new way of understanding God's usage of weakness. Your weakness highlights God's strength. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, that I am strong. Here, understand for a moment. God had given these revelations to the Apostle Paul. And God knows how sinners think. That Paul would exalt himself have been given these revelations. Look how special I am. Look how great I am. The God God of our salvation is infinite in wisdom. He sees this as, no, it has to come with affliction. And it did. The Lord asked him to remove it, and yet he did it. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. And the Apostle Paul understands this principle. He's well content with weaknesses and insults and distresses and persecutions and difficulties for Christ's sake because he says here, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, I'm required to depend upon the Lord, and that is true strength. See, if if life were as simple as everything I want, I get, everything I want to do, I'm able to do, and Whenever I want things, I get them. Why would we be motivated to pray? Why would you and I be motivated to trust in the Lord? Christian life boils down to something as simple as this. It's what John the baptizer said. He must increase, I must decrease. We come to understand God's power when he shows us more and more often our own weakness. You realize that you could yell at people, you could slander people, uh, you could finesse people with lies and deception, but at the end, it doesn't change people. What you're left with is that motivating people must be done the right way if it's going to be sustainable. We think about how we deal with others in your workplace, in your home, in the church. Ultimately, you realize the only sustainable change is when there is an internal change, that there is a new love, and that doesn't happen overnight. It's going to take time, and it's going to take something more than you. You ask yourselves, how can this happen? Well, you realize, I can't change that other person, because I can't even change myself. And that's when you realize that you have this access of power, and it comes through Jesus Christ, the mediator. We're told earlier, regarding prayer, 
prayer for the saints. That you and I have access to this power of Jesus Christ by the means of prayer. And we must pray for ourselves for our own growth. And that growth will come through weakness, through dependence, through trusting in the Lord. And that the growth of others will come in the same way. At times, it will be painful. It will be painful for us. It will be painful for other people. And this power that you and I all desire, this power, we realize it's not because of our own power. It's because of the power of God at work in the lives of sinners. The still, small voice that speaks quietly when we're too busy doing other things and shouting loudly, we're not hearing him. It's when he speaks with that still, small voice after he's humbled us that we're willing to listen. You realize that we're welcome to this throne of grace all the time. Anytime, all the time, we have access to this power. This power was manifested in God raising his son from the grave. That we look forward to the time when, by faith, he will raise us from the grave also. That this raising from the grave was the ultimate triumph. Triumph against Satan. That Jesus was raised to life that we might be justified. It proves that you and I have a sufficient Savior. And this power is at work in your life and in mine. And he does it by changing our priorities. Not me, but someone else. Not me, but the Lord Jesus. By changing our actions, by changing our speech, by changing our loves. And you realize here, it's only by weakness, it's only by humiliation that we get this new love. That we're trained in it, that we grow in it. And so we have here the presentation of the three what's. What is the hope of your calling? What is the riches of your inheritance in Christ? And what is the immeasurable power at work in you? And we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for you indeed are merciful.